Let me start today by asking you a question. Have you ever had the experience of having very low expectations and then experiencing something different and so much better than what you were expecting? Oh, I'm even seeing some raises of hands. It happens, doesn't it? I remember years ago, I was visiting a friend who'd gone away to school, and Friday night rolled around, and we didn't know what to do, so we did what we did back in those days before Netflix and On Demand and Amazon Prime. We decided to go see a movie. So we looked in this thing called a newspaper to see what was showing in the theater. This is a true story. This actually happened. So you looked in a newspaper, and uh, there, there weren't a whole lot of options. It wasn't a time of year where a lot of big films come out. And I remember there was one film that came out, that was coming out, that was based on a story written by Stephen King. And I'm not really a horror guy. Um, I don't really read horror books or go see horror movies, so I wasn't super excited for this film, knowing that he wrote it, but I had heard and read that it wasn't really in the horror genre of films, that it was just a story that he wrote. So I thought, well, well all right, we got to do something. And the other movies looked really bad, and this had decent reviews. So we're like, okay, let's go see that film. How bad could it be? Not exactly <laughs> high expectations. So we went. And uh, what we saw, I think it's fair to say, took us, the three of us, all by surprise. So it turned out to be a very serious film uh, that authors and critics ended up praising for its, quote, realism and, quote, existential motifs. So there were no crazy possessed dolls or dogs or people. And it was really inspirational, actually. In fact, one of the key lines of the film, and this might give it away for those of you who have seen it and liked it, was that hope is a good thing maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And when the movie ended, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Now, don't think about when you go see a superhero movie and you just all hang around chit-chatting till the end after all the credits roll, hoping to see a cookie of what the next uh, action-adventure superhero movie is going to be. There's nothing wrong with that. I do that. But this is the one time that I saw a movie in the theater where everyone in the theater sat in silence as all, not some, all of the credits rolled. Everyone just sat there. Like sort of, I guess, pro no one was expecting much, and I think everyone was just kind of trying to process what they had seen. Their, our minds were kind of blown. The movie I'm talking about, you've probably seen, it's called The Shawshank Redemption. And for the better part of the last two decades... It has ranked either number one or number two on IMDb's uh, consumer ratings of the best films of all time. Right there with Godfather. They kind of go back and forth. Well, today, I'm hoping we can have a bit of a similar experience with our perceptions of Jesus. Now, I know most of you here, the vast majority, have a really good opinion of Jesus. I think that's probably fair to say. Or at least you're curious about faith in Jesus, or you wouldn't be here. But I also wonder if what we expect is someone less than who Jesus is. Something less than what he's committed to and something less than what he's up to here and now. 
And that's one of the reasons that in this series, which started with the miracle of the resurrection, we're looking at the miracles of Jesus. Miracles that can up our expectations for life, that build faith in us and give us hope in times that sometimes can even feel or be very dark. So maybe, just maybe, Jesus can blow your mind a little bit this morning. What do you think? So this is, uh, I'm reading from John chapter 2. It's a somewhat famous story about Jesus. Let me read it to you. Here's how it starts. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used uh, by the kind used for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw, out, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Now there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, we've got Jesus at a party. An interesting, maybe even snarky interaction between Jesus and his mother, something we wouldn't expect, and a miracle where Jesus helps a young couple out by providing more wine for their wedding. And all this on its own, I think, would be worth discussing, and we will get to most of that. But before we move into those areas, I'd like to point out that this passage isn't just interesting. I think it's actually particularly significant. So this is the first miracle that's recorded by John. That Jesus performed. And it takes place in just the second chapter of John's account of the life of Jesus, which is known as the Gospel of John. And it's significant because, as scholars and literary professors have pointed out, when you tell the story of a hero, generally an author is going to tell or start with an event that's supposed to blow your mind, that is supposed to be quintessential to the character and the prowess of the main character. This is supposed to set up who your hero is, is the first story you tell about them. So for example, when telling the story of the life of Jesus, it would make sense if you're trying to tell the story of a sign that Jesus is someone to be paid attention to, and that's what this story does, is to start by telling a hugely amazing miracle. Now, not that Turning water into wine isn't pretty amazing because if I saw that happen, I would be pretty amazed. But later on, John tells a story of things like, oh, I don't know, walking on water, restoring sight to the blind, raising someone from the dead. Now, that's probably where I would start. This guy's legit. He raised someone from the dead. All of which John does include, but later in the telling of the life of Jesus. 
Instead, John starts with a miracle that's been described as, quote, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment, unquote. The stakes seem kind of low. But there's a reason, beyond perhaps this just being the first miracle that Jesus does, that John records that this as the first sign that Jesus is more than a man, and that this is a story here that's going to lay the foundation for who he is, what he came to do, and how we can respond. You see, with Jesus, the miracle that takes place is usually just one layer of something much bigger going on that Jesus is trying to communicate to people who witness the miracle or who read about it later. And we saw this a few weeks ago. You remember we, we uh, told the story or read the story, explored the story of Jesus healing a blind man. But it was interesting because he didn't just heal him immediately. It was a gradual healing. He healed him partially, and he said, what do you see? And the, the man who was healed said, I see people like trees walking around. So then he prayed for him again, and he was completely healed. And if you read that story in the context of everything else that's going on, you have all of Jesus' disciples trying to figure out who he is, and they keep missing it. They keep missing it. Then they see a little bit, and then they miss it, and they see a little bit. And it's as if the story of this gradual healing of a blind man is also a parable for the experience of all the disciples who keep missing who Jesus is, who are trying to see him clearly, but missing just different aspects. Theologians call that an, an, enacted, an enacted parable. It's a, it's a parable from life, from a real experience that's happening that also has more than just the surface level meaning. So why does Jesus work miracles? Well, I think he feels compassion for people. I don't want to take that away or out of the stories, but I also think Jesus' miracles often tell a story. And the story that today's miracle tells is so important because I think what we'll see here is that it sets the scene for everything else in John's gospel, and it's different from what we might expect. So today's story. What does this miracle tell? Well, the first thing I'd like to highlight is that it, it tells this story, that Jesus is the life and the source of the party. And I think it's helpful to help us understand this story, to start by considering this interaction that Jesus has with his mother. It's kind of an interesting one, right? A lot's been written about it. By the way, the word that's translated woman here is a very respectful term. It's almost like saying ma'am. So I think you can read this and it can be like, woman? But it's not like that, okay? <laughs> it's like a term of endearment and respect. So don't worry, Jesus is not like disrespecting his mom here. But this is what it says. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And I think the key phrase that we're going to look a lot at today is this one, where Jesus responds by saying, my hour has not yet come. You see, what I think is happening here is that Jesus is actually looking forward to something else. He says, my hour has not come. When he says, my hour has not come. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I imagine pretty much all of us have. Have, have any of you ever been single at a wedding at any point in your life? Yeah, if, you know, at least when you're five, and maybe this wouldn't apply when you're five, but we've all been single at a wedding, right? And what do you do? 
Even if you don't want to get married someday, you have no intention of getting married, it's hard not to imagine if you were getting married when you're at a wedding, right? What it would feel like if you're planning it, what you would do. And I actually think this is what part of what Jesus is doing here. He's looking forward to his own wedding when he says, why do you involve me? My hour, my wedding has not yet come. And in the culture of Jesus's day, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure that there was enough wine. So Jesus is saying, why are you asking me about wine? This isn't my wedding. Mine will come, and when it does, I'll be responsible then, but this isn't my time. And it sounds almost like he's saying he won't do a miracle, but then sort of changes his mind and does it anyway, kind of like, oh, all right, whatever. But I, think we, I don't think that's exactly what's happening here at all. I, I think let's give Jesus a little more credit here that he's being thoughtful and intentional by deciding to do this miracle, that he realizes an opportunity here. And certainly there's the opportunity to be gracious and loving and compassionate towards this couple who could be very embarrassed and shamed in their culture for running out of wine. That is true, yes. But I think there's more happening too. Rather, I think it's that Jesus decides, okay, I'm going to communicate to everyone something about the day that I get married, when my hour comes. And I think this is why the story makes the cut for John, and also why it's right up front. It's not just about a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. He's looking forward to something in the future that the present situation he is in parallels or lines up with or is similar to that he can use to make a point as well. And the present situation becomes an enacted parable of what his future wedding will be like. Jesus isn't just working a miracle here, but he's pointing towards his own wedding in the future. Now, you might say, Brad, what do you, I mean, maybe I'm at weddings and I think, you know, when I was single or I am single now, and I think about, oh, okay, what would my wedding be like? Sure. But one thing that's important to realize about Jesus is that again and again throughout Scripture, he's actually referred to as a bridegroom. So there are lots of ways that the relationship between God and people is described. We've got king subject, we've got shepherd sheep, we've got father children. But also, uh, this relationship is referred to as, or, or pictured as a bridegroom preparing for a huge wedding feast. And Jesus, I think, takes this identity on himself. You know, throughout Christian scriptures, and particularly in the writings of John, who wrote this, Jesus again and again is referred to as a bridegroom. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when asked by why his disciples do not fast, Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he's still with them? A chapter later in John, John the Baptist is speaking of Jesus and says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. Uh, the Apostle Paul's writing later in a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he spends a good bit of time just explaining how he thinks uh, marriage should work. And then he says this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Later, John, the same author of our gospel today, in another book he wrote called Revelation, writes about how the consummation or the renewal of all things is described as a wedding feast. And he writes this, Jesus is being praised, and it says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is 
described as a lamb throughout that whole book. So where everything is headed, basically, is to this giant wedding party thrown by the bridegroom Jesus. That's the imagery we see over and over and over in Scripture. So when Jesus says, this is not my wedding, my hour hasn't come, he's looking forward to that day. The consummation and renewal of all things. And in doing so, he demonstrates not only that his wedding is still to come, but what it will, that it will be beyond compare. And to make it real for people, he performs this miracle. He turns water into wine and has it taken to the person who's called the master of the banquet. The master banquet, sometimes we still have someone like that's kind of like the MC, the person who's supposed to make sure the party is really good, the master of ceremonies, the toastmaster. And notice what the toastmaster says. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. It's almost like with this miracle, Jesus is like, who is the master of ceremonies now? And like, you've been drinking wine out of a box, and I brought the Dong Perignon, okay? This is a party now. And now, I don't think it would be fair to say that Jesus is promoting any type of abuse of alcohol at all. But, based on the quantity he provides, about 150 or more gallons of wine, and the quality, I do think it's fair to say that there is certainly uh, a let-the-good-times-roll attitude here. It would be hard to argue anything else. And I think also this is part of the point. It's really a shame when we associate drabness, prudishness, or the lack of fun with a life with God. That's not the picture of a life with Jesus that we get in this passage or throughout Scripture. And what we see in the Scriptures is a life's mission for Jesus that's culminating in a huge party with the best wine that God himself is throwing. And when in an enacted parable, Jesus gives us a picture of what God wants the party to look like, he provides the best wine and lots of it. What is the personality of God? And it may shock you to hear me say this, maybe it won't, but God is the life of the party. And we misunderstand the personality of God when we associate a less colorful, less joyful, less exciting life with him. Jesus is the life of the party here. He keeps it going and takes it to another level. You see that, right? I'm not just making this up. 150 plus gallons, gallons of the best wine that you could ever imagine after everyone's already been drinking. This is who he is. And my point is that if we reject Christianity or resent it because we think somehow that life would be more fun or full without Jesus, if we lower our expectations of what the experience of life can be, then we're misunderstanding something about the personality of God. We're responding to something else, a culture, 
a bad example of Christianity, something, but not God himself. God, in this sense, is the ultimate party thrower who loves a good party and is already planning one. The party to end all parties, that's who he is. So this is one way that I think we can see uh, this story as an enacted parable. But there's another big one here, and this is also connected to verse 4, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. This term, my hour, is also used by John quite a bit in reference to Jesus. So in John 7, in John 8, in John chapter 12, in John chapter 13, every time Jesus uses this my hour language, he's referring actually to his own death as his hour. Again, he's looking forward to something in the future in which the present is a parable or a parallel. And what he's looking forward to shows, and this is important, that he's committed to this role of bringing new life, new wine, the best of things, the most possibility to people who would follow him. So on one level, Jesus is pointing out the nature of the opportunity that he's offering to those who'd follow him, while at the same time, on another level, he's pointing to what it will take for him to offer that life to his followers and the depth of his commitment to making it all happen. So you notice when Jesus tells the servants to fill the containers with water that will become wine, he doesn't just tell them to put them in any old bowl or any old jug or anything like that. He says, he points to the six stone water jars, the kind used for ceremonial washing. He chooses the jars that were used for washing and purification so that the devout could come cleanly into God's presence. That's what they were used for when they were filled with water. And he has them miraculously filled with wine. This is no accident. On the last night of Jesus' life, before he went to the cross, before his resurrection, it says he took wine and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. See, this is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus on the cross where his blood was spilled to purify those who would come to him, to purify them from all impurities that would keep us all from a full experience of the presence of God and life. That's his hour. So Jesus, in an enacted parable, is pointing to his death and the purifying effect that it will have. It's power to purify all who would come to God through Jesus so that we could be in his presence, we could join the banquet without any shame, without any guilt, You know, a lot of people drink to forget their shame and guilt. Jesus wants to throw a party where that's removed first. You know, for 35 years of my life, because of the family I grew up in, I didn't drink anything. (laughs) But people always thought I was drinking something, especially at parties or weddings. And when I was a young pastor, I'm a, I don't know if I'm a young pastor, I'm 42, you, you be the judge. But when I was a really young pastor in my late 20s and early 30s, people would have to tell me, hey, Brad, you might want to cool it on the dance floor <laughs> because everyone thinks you're drunk. And I didn't even drink at that point. So not that I'm the perfect example, especially if you see me dance, I'm not going to say that that's true. 
But if you can imagine the shame and the guilt being lifted away, not being a motivation at all for consuming, and still being able to consume in a guilt-free way, and just let that enhance the experience. And I think this is why Jesus starts with this miracle, or where John starts with this miracle about Jesus. Because in this story, you've got eternal life and the cross all right here. Jesus' mission and how he's going to accomplish it, both here in this miracle about turning water into wine. And eternal life, remember this. You may have heard this before. I'm not sure. This is the kicker here. Eternal life isn't, it's mainly about quality of life as opposed to quantity. Sometimes we think eternal life and we think everlasting life, like never ending, which is great and that's part of eternal life. But eternal life is mostly about the experience, the quality of life. And eternal life is not meant to start someday. It's meant to start now. It's quality of life, not just number of days. And I think what we also see here is that we can taste that ultimate party now. Not just someday. This is an enacted parable, but it's also a real happening in the lives of real people who are experiencing a real taste of the future now. They get this choice wine now. Not just someday at the ultimate party, but at their wedding. 2,000 years ago in Cana, they tasted the best. The party starts now. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. Now. This is the opportunity that is afforded us through Jesus. Choice wine now, whatever that means in your life. Even in anticipation of the whole shebang later. Miracles, tastes of the future happen in the here and now. We don't have to wait for everything. The God who's planning the party of the ages is God right now, and he's at work flipping things on their ear around us right now. And we need to know that. We need to experience that. So how can I join the party now? Let me give you sort of a simple idea to maybe help you remember this just throughout the week. We're invited into an ongoing process of thirst, delight, and renewed perspective. Thirst. Stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty. Life is going to give you (laughs) reasons to thirst for something better. Stay thirsty. Don't lower your expectations. Some things are not going to be good, and they're going to hurt, and there's going to be disappointment. Stay thirsty for the good stuff, for the choice wine. Thirst is another name for hope. Anticipation. 
looking for the next drink and expecting to find it. And when we combine thirst with a Godward action, it becomes faith. This is what we need so that when in our lives we hear Mary's instruction, do whatever he tells you, and we're ready to respond to what God is doing around us, to obey even, to jump in and experience the choice wine of life, even experience a miracle. Stay thirsty. It's very important. And thirst is sometimes a a symptom of something that's missing. But it can also be a hopeful response. And when that happens, when we are made aware of something that God is doing around us, when we experience a taste of it, the second thing is delight. Seriously, soak it all in. Live in it, live it up in it to the fullest. Honestly, we don't actually get choice wine every day. And when we do, the question is, can we enjoy the good thing that God puts in our lives? The people in this story enjoy the wine that Jesus provides. The master of the feast is blown away by how good it is. But, and I don't understand every part to this, but I do meet people who sometimes feel guilty about having a good time or are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's kind of like if we have too much fun, we must be doing something wrong. But it's helpful to remember that Jesus was the life of the party. He wanted everyone to have a good time, to enjoy the blessings that he was putting before them. The metaphor we have here of the wedding and the wine is one of purification, total acceptance. There's no guilt, there's no pressure, just acceptance. God wants us to enjoy to the fullest the good things that he puts in our lives, whatever they are. So if you find yourself guilty feeling guilty for enjoying life, try this. Whatever part of you in your heart that wants to apologize, just turn that part into thanksgiving. Be grateful. Say thank you. Thank God for the time you have with your friends, the laughter, the good meal, the great party. Delight with him about whatever you're feasting on that's good. Jesus, that was some choice wine. Thank you. I can't wait for the real party. Last night, yesterday, this past moment, whatever it was, that was great, but it was just a taste. And let the thirst, let the delight bring you a renewed perspective. I was trying to think of another way to say that because I feel like renewed perspective doesn't sound that awesome. (laughs) What do you want in life? Renewed perspective. It just doesn't, I don't know how motivating that is. But I think that's what we see with the people who were at this party. It says at the end of the passage, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Something switched for them in the way they saw the world. 
Something switched in their expectations of what life could be. What is faith in Jesus in this passage? It's believing that he actually wants good things for your life. It's seeing that he's committed in the deepest, most practical way to making that possible. And then it's using those perspectives as the lens through which you view your life and what's happening. Perspective. Could it be that what Jesus' followers experience here, the glory of Jesus, and our happiness are not enemies or opposed, but rather they're connected? What if God is actually most glorified, as we see in this passage, when we expect and experience these things? So let's try an exercise. Um, I'm going to take a few minutes with this. Um, Some of you might love it. Some of you might be bored and distracted. It's okay, whatever your experience. But I want you just to close your eyes, just for a moment. And the first thing I want you to do is I just want you to breathe for a moment. Our lives are full of so many distractions, so many notifications on our phone. I just want you to breathe and breathe deeply for a little bit. And when you breathe in, I just want you to count to four. Hold it for a count of seven. And breathe out for a count of eight. And once you get into a little bit of rhythm there, and take your time, we're going to, you know, we're going to take a little bit of time with this. When you breathe in, I just want you to say a simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. And I'll be quiet for a moment, let you breathe and pray. Now, once you find a little bit of stillness, as you pray, come Holy Spirit. I want to ask you one question. Where do you thirst? Where do you thirst? What comes to mind when I ask that question? Just sit with that for a moment. And with that in mind, I want you just to use your imagination to imagine the time when Jesus' hour does come and he's on the cross. 
And I want you to imagine that as he utters one of his final words, which is, I thirst, just for a moment, your current thirst comes to his mind. And his sacrifice is for your thirst and is also a moment of solidarity and commitment. Now bring your thirst to mind again, the thing that first came up. How does the sacrifice of Jesus affect how you view your current situation, your expectation of what can happen? The question and why I'm doing, we did that exercise was to maybe tap into what do you expect from life and from God? And if your answer is not much, you might find it helpful to pray like this <laughs> several times a week, maybe even every day. Expectations are important. They keep us primed so that when the Spirit says to us the words of Mary in this passage, do whatever he tells you, we're ready to respond and see miracles take place in our lives. This is the opportunity we have today and tomorrow and every day until the big party happens. The opportunity is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is great language for this because until that big party, we do live in a world that is full of brokenness and pain. Which means that even as we taste and are satisfied, we will begin to feel pain and thirst that comes with it. And the challenge then is to choose again and again to turn that thirst towards God with an expectation so that we can experience the future now. So we enter this circle of thirst, delight, Renewed perspective that builds in us thirst so that we can delight and have our perspective renewed again and again. Satisfied yet thirsty for more. That's our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray our prayer is simply that we could see you more clearly. And we pray that this story, this miracle, this parable can, would connect us more to you and your activity in the world and our lives. That we would not give in to despair. It would build hope in us. And we could be aware of the miracles you're working around us and taste what's coming now. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're on the worship team, please come on up. Um, also, if uh, you are on the prayer team and representing the prayer team today, we have a team that prays before the service. Oftentimes, we'll have impressions. Um, and Kenny's on his way up now. He's going to share what some of those are.
Also, I just want to do a little introduction for worship now while I'm up here with a microphone. And that is after prayer, we're going to move into a time of worshiping God through song. Uh, during that first song, we're going to receive our offering. This is a way to worship God, but there's no pressure here. If this is one of your first times here, you're welcome to participate. But it's how we support what God's doing here. It's also a way to, to recognize that everything good that we have in our lives comes from him. So we'll receive offering during that first song, and you can give online by texting Philly to 77977. And if you just put your um, Connect cards in there too, any extra giving envelopes, we'll recycle those and use them again. All right, let me turn it over to Kenny, who's going to share with us some of the impressions the prayer team had.